Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Isaac. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who I don't know, my name is Dave Hahn. Um, I say this every time I get to preach, and I'm serious when I say so. It's an incredible privilege for me to be able to uh, open up God's Word and, uh, and share it with you. In the 1990s, the world was nearly overtaken by a grassroots movement centered around a solitary phrase. This movement grew so large and it grew so fast that not even the founder of said movement was able to profit from it or trademark it. Today, tens of millions of items with this phrase have been and are being sold. And regardless of your age or your background, I am fairly certain that everybody in this room and within the sound of my voice is aware of what this phrase behind the movement is. What would Jesus do? WWJD. So in 1989, a Michigan youth group leader wanted to remind Christians, specifically kids in her youth group, what it meant to be a Christian, how to lead a good life. Now she considered making t-shirts and hats, but at the time, friendship bracelets were all the rage. Anybody who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s knows that friendship bracelets were this big thing. And so she had 300 of these bracelets made that said WWJD on it. And word got out about these bracelets, and it got out fast. And by 1997, factories were churning out 20,000 of these bracelets a week. And in the 90s alone, it is estimated that 52 million WWJD bracelets were sold. So the phrase behind this movement, what would Jesus do, no matter how popular, is both helpful and in some ways misleading. Let me explain. It's helpful in that it has caused people to question uh, the life that they are living and how they should actually live, to take a look at life from God's perspective rather than their own, rather than the world of that around them. But it's potentially misleading in that we know very little about what Jesus did in the first 30 years of his life. And even during his three years of public life, we, what we know is fairly limited. John himself, who walked and talked and ate with Jesus, finishes his own gospel this way. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what did Jesus do? A lot more than we know. 
The fact is that Jesus did things that we will not, cannot, and maybe should not do. Has anyone before or since Jesus fed 5,000 men and their families from a little boy's lunch? Or turned water into wine? Or healed entire townships? Or raised the dead? Walked on water? You might want to be careful if you try that one. Apart from Jesus' miracles, there were things that Jesus didn't do simply because it didn't make sense for him to do it. As one author put it, there was never a time when it was appropriate for Jesus to play the saxophone. But there may be a time when it's exactly the right thing for you to do. So WWJD, for all the good that is done, does have its limits. And as we discussed last week, the Christ life is not simply about the imitation of Christ. Jesus is more than an example to follow. He is God. He is Savior. He is Judge. And he is King. And the only one who can truly live the Christ life is Christ himself. So, what was underneath the WWJD phenomenon? I'm curious. And what does it say about Christians and our world that WWJD became as popular as it did? It's still being messed with a little bit, even in our day and age. And there are likely many answers to those questions, but I think that most of them center around this one big idea. It is this. God has written his laws on the hearts of every man woman, and child. And we know that there is a way that we ought to live. So assuming that's true, there are two logical questions that would follow. Number one, who determines how we ought live? Is the answer within ourselves? Do we determine it on our own? Or is it outside of ourselves? And what do we do when we fail to live as we ought, knowing that we each have. At worst, we justify our behavior or we blame others. Only slightly better than that option, we may try to not do those bad things again until inevitably we do. And at best, we admit our failure and look to be made right and to make right of the wrongs that we have done. But to whom can we look in our failures? And who can make us and the messes that we have made right again? For Christians, the answers to how, we ought, how ought we live and what do we do when we fail to live as we ought are evident in Scripture. Most explicitly, the answers to both of those questions are found in the person of Jesus Christ. In and through identifying with the life and the death and the re resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are made right with God. And because he lived the perfect life that we could not live, and he lived a perfect life, but he died the death that we deserved to die. The Bible says that he who did not sin, Jesus, became sin 
so that we who are sinful might be counted sinless. And upon his death, Jesus rose again to give us eternal life. And it is his life that is lived out in and through us. And our behavior as righteous children of God flows out of our new identity in Christ and our dependency upon him. See, identity change leads to behavior change. But behavior change, apart from identity change, is futile. And it's not enough. Because morality saves no one. Sinful people need a savior. Spiritually dead people need life from a living God. So we've been in the book of Ephesians since the end of April. The first three chapters of this book, as Jonathan has said many times, make clear who we are and what we have in Christ, both as individuals and as his body, the church. And the last three chapters of Ephesians make clear how we are to live then in light of our new identity. So last week we looked at verses 17 through 24 of chapter 3 where Paul is writing to Christians who were once Gentiles, and he admonished them to put off the things that once defined them and their former way of life. But he encouraged them to put on their new self. Their new self, according to these verses, being found in the likeness of God, in righteousness and in holiness. And by using the phrases, put off and put on, Paul is actually using a clothing metaphor, something that his hearers and certainly we today can relate to, even a clothes horse like me. So it doesn't take long to come and figure out that I'm a fairly casual dresser. The difference between my formal clothes and my casual clothes come down to these two things, just so you can identify it. Does my shirt have buttons on it or not? That's number one. Number two, do my jeans have holes in them or not? That's casual and formal for me. But casual and formal really are subjective terms. I mean, there are people in this room who cut the lawn wearing the same thing that I would wear to a funeral. And that's fine. But wherever we find ourselves on the clothing spectrum, we can all agree on these two things. One, we don't put on new clothes without first taking off the old clothes. Secondarily, there are certain roles that require certain kinds of dress. We don't go to weddings in the clothes that we sleep in. We don't get buried in the clothes that we paint houses in. A man released from prison does not continue to wear a striped or a blaze orange jumpsuit for the rest of his life. I mean, how can one who dresses like a prisoner ever truly feel free? Similarly, as new creations in Christ, like the clothes that we wear, there are behaviors that we need to put on and behaviors we need to put off forever. 
Of course, the passages we're looking at today aren't actually about the clothes that we wear. These verses aren't even really just about the things that we shouldn't do. You see, Scripture rarely, if ever, gives prohibitions without also giving a positive, reinforcing command, either implicitly or explicitly. Quite often, we are actually given the why behind each command. Verses 25 through 32, which we're looking at today, are no different. With each command in these verses, we get, don't do this anymore, do this instead, and here's why you should do it that way. So let's look today at some of the what's and the why's in these eight verses, starting with verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Don't tell lies. Speak the truth. We serve a sovereign, omniscient, and omnipresent God. And we follow the one who is the truth. See, lying is contrary to God's very nature. And nothing can be or is hidden from him, even though we live as though it is. The best story, the best illustration that I can give around that as far as how we live before God is like the little kid who's playing hide-and-seek with his dad, and where he decides to hide is underneath the rug right in front of his dad. As though that kid is hiding. As though that dad doesn't know where his son is. See, lying also hurts the body of Christ, much in the same way that a physical body lying to itself would do damage. Imagine your hand touching something that's hot while your nervous system tells your brain that it's cool. It would be chaos. Disharmony and disunity would ensue. And so it is with the body of Christ. Additionally, as members of one body, specifically Jesus' body, it is assumed that we are part of deep, abiding, and trusting community. See, when Paul uses the word neighbor here, he is certainly referring to those that we live amongst, our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and all of that. But more specifically, in this verse, he's referring to our brothers and our sisters in Christ, those in this room that we would call believers, those in around the world that we would call believers. Those are the neighbors he's referring to there. And as members of one body, we need people that we can walk with to confess our lies and our struggles to. The things that no one but God knows about. Where we can remind and encourage one another in the truth so that we might be restored, not that so we can condemn. So my question to you is, do you have gospel community like that? The next shift in behavior is found in verses 26 through 27. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't get mad, but if you do, make sure that your anger 
is righteous. Is it possible to be angry and not sin? According to this passage, it is. And according to God's own character and Jesus' life here on earth, it certainly is. It's the difference, though, between controlled, righteous anger and unhinged, selfish, sinful anger. See, righteous anger is the kind of anger that God exhibits when confronted with sin and with evil and injustices and wickedness, and it is rooted in love. So I have a friend whose daughter went to Summerfest with some friends last week, and someone dropped a drug into her drink that caused her to forget most of the day. She basically blacked out all of Friday or whatever day it was. Apart from that, nothing bad happened to her, but my friend, her dad, having learned of this, was and is angry. His daughter was sinned against and was mistreated. And it is safe to say that what he felt, at least in part, was righteous anger. Very likely we have all been in that place. Conversely then, what does sinful anger look like? Well, it is the kind of anger that Paul warns against here and then later on in verse 31. This is anger rooted in pride, in fear, in control, and in entitlement. The anger that you and I exhibit most often, unfortunately. The anger that rises up within us when our little world gets messed with. So the next time that you find yourself angry, after you've calmed down a little bit, ask yourself why you're angry. If you want to determine between righteous anger and sinful anger, Ask yourself why you're angry. Is it about what matters to you? Or is it about what matters to God? And the good, the eternal good of others. One author put a finer point on this idea and he said, he that will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. So if you're gonna get angry, Let it be directed at sin. Friends, you and I can let go of sinful anger when we trust God to be in control. To give us what we need and to bring justice when and how he sees fit. In verse 28, we find the next behaviors to put off and put on. It reads, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal, work, and give things away. Stealing is more nuanced, I think, than we define it. I think stealing is one of those things where when we read that command, we go, I'm good, I didn't do that. I don't do that. But it's more 
biblically speaking, than taking money or possessions. It's more than robbery. It's stealing time or supplies or services from our employer. It's not giving someone else what they're due by duplicating or downloading or streaming medias unpaid for. It's falsifying insurance claims or tax returns. And the list of what qualifies as stealing is long, but here's the essence, I think, of what Scripture is talking about when it it says stealing, do not steal. We steal, you and I steal, when we gain, but our neighbor loses. When we take advantage of someone else for our own gain, for our own benefit. So instead of stealing... The Bible says we are to work and to work hard. That's what Paul means by using the words labor and his own hands in these verses. He's talking about working to the point of exhaustion. And when we work, the question is, is are we working as unto the Lord, as though he is the one that we're accountable to, as though he is the one who's watching? Because that's what we're called to, and that's what's true. In verse 29, we go back to how we talk as children of God. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't use your mouth for evil, but for good. Refrain from using speech that hurts the hearer. Vulgar, dishonest, unkind, untrue words. The fact is that the words that we use do not simply emanate from our mouths. See, Jesus taught in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19, that our words give testimony to the condition of our hearts. Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And as new creations in Christ and members of his body, we are to refrain from speech that hurts because it emanates from our hearts. And instead, we are to grow in using talk that builds. Words that help and encourage, that comfort, that cheer, words that heal. In verse 30, Paul shifts focus from how we treat one another to how we treat the Holy Spirit. He writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know that the Holy Spirit can feel sorrow and pain? The most natural question, at least it was mine, after reading a text like this ought to be, how exactly do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? To grieve the Holy Spirit 
is to ignore his presence, is to ignore his work and his prompting. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He is stirring in us, he is moving in us, he is pointing us to Christ. And when we ignore his presence, and when we ignore his work in doing so, and we ignore that prompting within us, we grieve the Spirit. And as Christ followers, indwelled and sealed by this very Holy Spirit, we shouldn't want to grieve him, but to please him. Charles Spurgeon talked about grieving the Holy Spirit this way. He wrote, The Spirit of God grieves when you are sitting down to read a novel and there is your Bible unread. You have no time for prayer, but the Spirit sees you very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him. Although the word grieve is a painful one, it is an expressibly, inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions. That's a lot of words. Let me read it to you again. God condescends to enter into relationships with you and I, his people, that his divine mind might be affected by what you and I do. Spurgeon continues, what a marvel that deity should be said to grieve over the faults of beings so utterly insignificant as we. The spirit would not be the spirit of truth if he could approve of that which is false in us. He would not be pure if that which is impure in us did not grieve him. And he is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes, for he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows in our sins. So where in your life are you breaking God's heart? And does it bother you? The last shift in behavior for the believer is in this, in this section is found in verses 31 through 32. It reads, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Don't be bitter or unkind. Be kind and loving. Each word here is used to describe an inward feeling or an outward expression of negativity, hostility, and other kinds of evil. There are words in this list, obviously, that are explicitly external and verbal, and there are others that are about the attitudes hidden within you and I. See, some of us are pretty good at keeping our mouths shut around the people and about the things that cause us to feel anger and wrath and bitterness and malice. 
until, of course, we're out of hearing distance and around people who we know will listen and agree with us. And then there are others of us who just say what we feel. Almost uncontrollably. Friends, we serve a God that not only hears our words, but he sees our hearts. So whether we feel these things that Paul is talking about or we express them, the command is the same. Put off those things. That is not who you are anymore. Put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. So listen, we have all been hurt and sinned against in word and in deed. Likely, and likewise, we have all sinned against others. And yet we are called to be kind and tenderhearted and to forgive. Why? Because according to verse 32, that's how God has treated us. Verse 32 reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you realize that of all the things that we're talking about today, the, the things that we are called to put off are things that Christ himself has never worn? And all that we are called to put on find their fullness in Christ alone. We can be kind because we have been recipients of God's kindness in Christ. We can be tender-hearted because we have been perfectly loved by Jesus. And we can forgive because we have been perfectly forgiven, fully forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our ability to do the things we are called to do are possible because Jesus did them first and he lives in us. It is no longer you and I who live, but Christ who lives in us. Galatians 2.20. So we've discussed today what we are to put off and put on in light of our identity in Christ. Let's talk about the why behind these things. Because Paul gives them to us. Paul actually gives us very practical reasons for each of these commands. At a high level, we find it in verses one through three of chapter four, the same chapter we're in. He writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Apart from God's own glory, he is primarily interested in our relationship with him and our relationship with one another, that we would be unified. See, we are the body of Christ and we are to be one. Verse 4 says, that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all. 
More specifically, let's look at today's eight verses again and pay attention to the why behind each command. And let me give you a spoiler alert. It is not so that things will be more awesome for you and I. Verses 26 through 27, we are told to not sin in our anger, to quickly resolve things when we have sinned. That's what he's talking about when he says, don't let the sun go down in an argument. He doesn't literally mean when, don't let the sun go down because there are places in this world where the sun doesn't go down for months. He's talking about resolving it quickly. And he says to give no opportunity to the devil. See, the devil looks for opportunities to fan our anger into hatred and into violence and into the breaking of fellowship with one another. And the implicit why behind these things is to maintain our unity in Christ. In verse 28, we are told to no longer steal, but to work hard so that we may have something to share with anyone in need, not so that you and I could have more. In verse 29, we are told to refrain from corrupt talk and speak good words that build others up so that it may give grace to those who hear. The unmerited, generous words that emanate from our mouth offered to one another. In verse 30, we are told to not grieve the Holy Spirit because it is by him that we are sealed for the day of redemption. See, the Spirit of God permanently indwells those that he saves. And while we may grieve him, he does not leave us, even when we sin. That's what it means to be sealed for the day of redemption. Finally, in verses 31 through 32, we are told to put away all evil attitudes of the heart and expressions of the mouth and to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Why? Because God in Christ forgave us fully, freely, and forever, never having asked for it and not being deserved of it. And when you and I refuse to forgive others, we demonstrate that we have not understood or perhaps received the forgiveness that Christ has extended to us. We need to look at the cross of Christ and see our sin there. And we need to look at the cross of Christ and see our forgiveness there and extend it to others. So, who do you need to forgive today? Who is it that you need to be kind and tender-hearted towards? What sin or evil or injustice deserves your anger instead of those who are the current recipients of it? Who in your life is in need and could use some of what you have to share? What good and fruitful words can you offer to someone who may need a measure of God's grace? And where in your life are you ignoring the Holy Spirit's presence and his prompting? And what will it take for you to pay attention? What do we need to put off today? And what do we need to put on 
instead. See, our identity in Christ leads to new behaviors that not only bring God glory, but helps others, builds up and encourages others, and shows love to others. But it takes a saving relationship with God in Christ and deep abiding relationships with other Christ followers for us to begin to look like who God says we already are. That's how that happens. Holiness and transformation, maturity in Christ doesn't happen in isolation. Sanctification and maturity don't take place in a vacuum. That is not how God designed things. It is through gospel-centered community that God brings these things about in you and I. And if you have gospel-centered community, stay there. Grow deeper in it. Invite others into it. And if you don't have it, find it or create it at all costs because nothing will cause you to come to know Christ, his body, or yourself better. And real practically speaking, if you're not sure what gospel community looks like or how to get into it, would you talk with myself or with Jonathan? We'd be glad to talk with you, to pray with you, to help you find it. So I never owned a WWJD bracelet. I wasn't opposed to it or anything. I think it was a done thing by the time that I came to know and love Jesus. Or maybe it was at the zenith of its thing and I was like, I don't want to do this thing that everybody else is doing. I, both could be true. But I remember that there was a pastor around this time whose messages I devoured and whose books I read um, being a young believer. His name was Bob George. He actually passed away uh, just last spring. But Bob once shared an observation on WWJD that has impacted me ever since. He said this, Do you really want to know what Jesus did? Jesus did whatever the Father told him to say or do. He said nothing and he did nothing unless the Father told him to say or do it. Jesus lived a life of complete dependence upon and obedience toward God. And we are called to live in that same obedience and dependency. See, that's what Jesus did. And it's what we, as followers of Christ, are to do. Living the Christ life demands dependence upon God to do in and through us what we cannot. And it requires us taking off the old and putting on the new. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are prisoners and dead men no more. So let's dress like it. And let's live in the good of it for his glory and for the building up of this body and one another. Let's pray. Loving God, we offer ourselves to you today joining our voices to the great chorus of those who sing your praise and depend on you alone. 
We have no greater claim than the one you have given us as holy, righteous, fully forgiven, and perfectly loved sons and daughters of the one true king. And should we boast, let us do so in him. Let us find no satisfaction in our vain efforts to earn your love and approval through the energy of our flesh. Let us find no greater satisfaction than knowing our standing before you is not dependent upon us, but on your own begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in him that we stand firm. You have called us out of darkness and isolation and into your great light to be members of your body. And so long as we find ourselves here on earth, may we declare the gospel that those who are where we once were would hear and respond by the power of your spirit. Lord, we long for the day when all your children will live in your peace and praise your name. And until that day, would you give us patience and enduring hope rooted only in Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.